From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch podcast series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I am Audra Dipti of the History Watch Project. It's February, Black History Month here in Canada, as well as in the United States. For that reason, we decided to share a recording of a Black History Month event that was co-organized and sponsored by the History Watch Project and the Institute of African Studies at Carleton University. Join us as we listen to David Austin as he discusses race, politics and power in Canada, and his award-winning book, Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex and Security in 60s Montreal. Throughout the recording, you'll hear him in conversation with CBC's Adrian Haywood. The talk was entitled, Research, Repression and Freedom in Montreal, Canada. For those of you that don't know me, I am Audra Dipti. I'm an associate professor here in the Department of History, cross-appointed with the Institute of African Studies. Thank you all so much for being here on the second day of February for our Black History Month event. Today's talk, as you're all aware, is entitled Research, Repression, and Freedom. It's a conversation with David Austin and is hosted by Adrian Harewood. So we're really, really lucky to have these two intellectuals here with us. And I suppose I'll just say a little bit about why I think it's important that we have these kinds of events. When we study history at university, it tends to be framed as an intellectual exercise, an opportunity to pursue curiosities, a methodology that allows us to document details. Rarely, in my estimation, do we think of history as radical. Black History Month reminds us that history is not only political, but it also has the capacity to be radical. We recognize black history every February because for a generation of black intellectuals in Africa and in the African diaspora, history was not only political, history was not only radical, history was their weapon. Those various black intellectuals did not have the luxury of pursuing random intellectual pursuits. They understood that they needed to construct historical narratives that countered a historical tradition that in many ways denigrated blacks in Africa and the African diaspora. Which is why it is so fitting today that we have David Austin speaking with us about research, repression, and freedom. So let's give David. So Dave, I, I guess I'm going to start this, this way. This year um, marks the 25th anniversary of your arrival, or your return, uh, to Montreal. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I find noteworthy is that you've, you've written three books, and all of the book's titles reference Montreal. Mm-hmm. This latest book of yours, Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex, and Security in 60s Montreal. Uh, you've also written A View for Freedom. Alfie Roberts speaks on, the Caribbe- on Caribbean cricket, Montreal, and C.L.R. James. And also, you don't play with revolution, the Montreal lectures of C.L.R. James. Um, you have written a paper uh, entitled All Roads Lead to Montreal. So what I wanted to begin by asking you was, tell us about the road that led you to Montreal. In many ways, I think Montreal has been my window to the world, and I think it's the same for anybody that lives in any city, whether we consciously acknowledge that or not. But 
actually made a conscious decision to move to Montreal in 1990, December 1990. So really it was 1991. Partly because as I, I had lived there for two years, in the early 1980s, between 1980 and 1982, having moved there from England when I was almost 10. So it was always part of my consciousness. I went to high school in Scarborough, Ontario, and my mind began to shift towards other things that had always been part of conversations in my home. You know, my grandfather was both a Garveyite and a communist in Jamaica. So, you know, I used to read quite a bit, but I started reading a lot more. I started spending a lot of time at Third World Bookstore in Toronto, which was on Bathurst Street. Which is a significant place. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was kind of like a, a shrine for many of us. We, we spent a lot of time there exchanging ideas. And it was run by, by a, quite a character, a guy yeah. by the name of Lenny Johnson. Yeah, Lenny Johnson and Gwendolyn Johnson, his wife, yeah. And he had a huge influence on many of us. In that bookstore, uh, a couple of things happened. I discovered Walter Rodney, a book called Groundings with My Brothers. Guyanese historian. The Guyanese historian, political activist, for lack of a better word. And in that book, he talks about a number of things. He talks about politics in Jamaica, Jamaica's history. He talks about Rastafari as a religion. In that book, he also, three of the present, three of the lectures in that book that were reproduced were delivered in Montreal. So my question was, well, why Montreal? And I came to find out after that he had been in Montreal for the Congress of Black Writers in 1968. And in attempting to return to Jamaica, uh, he was expelled from the country and came back to Montreal and sojourned there for a while before going through Cuba and then eventually returning to Tanzania where he had talked before. But the question of why Montreal was part of, you know, as I read that book. My older brother gave me a, a book uh, which is about to be reissued. The unfortunate title is Let the Niggas Burn, but it's an anthology about the Sir George Williams affair in uh, 1969. That book was also in the bookstore and I later acquired copies and we would circulate them among ourselves, among friends. And very quickly, what was the Sir George Williams affair? The know. computer center, well, the student occupation, black-led student occupation, 1969, in response to an accusation of racism on the part of a, a science professor. Uh, but it became much more than a student occupation. It became, symbolically came to represent racial racism and racial exclusion in the Canadian context. And in that sense, it reached circles way beyond the university environment in the broader Canadian context and also in the Caribbean. And the NFB has just released a, a documentary. That's right, the night before. The whole world was in that bookstore in many ways. Right? But something about what I read and witnessed in relation to Montreal when I decided to go back to school, Montreal just became the logical option, and McGill became the logical option because at that time they had January acceptance admissions. So I applied, and it was I started January 1991. So the 1990s, people who probably some folks here who weren't born. <laughs> which, makes me, which makes me feel very, very old. Um, but the 1990s were a time of, I would say, heightened political consciousness mm -hmm. on campuses, not just in, the, in Montreal, but really across this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and McGill was a hotbed, really, of all kinds of activity, whether it was anti-apartheid movements, whether it was the kind of black consciousness groupings that, that you know, folks were, were a part of. Tell us about being in that kind of milieu at that moment. What, what, what did being in, what was it like to be in Montreal at that time? And, and how did it, do you think it eventually shaped your own kind of intellectual development? 
I think for us the 1990s was our 60s, our 60s and 70s. It was a cultural moment, political moment. It was the era of public enemy, KRS-One, X-Clan. Arrested development. Arrested development in terms of heightened political <coughs> hip-hop rap music. There was a time of Spike Lee, and Do the Right Thing, among many other films. But it was also the time of Black Audio Collective in England, right, which is very important. Isaac Julian's The Darker Side of Black, uh, John O'Compra's film, The Seven Songs for Malcolm X. Right? These were filmmakers, not American, right? Uh, black British filmmakers who were doing something different aesthetically right? as art, making films that were really works of art, but were also profoundly political too. So it was, it was a moment when all of these things converged. Now, of course, Spike Lee's films thematically were dealing with a number of issues that were, were germane to that moment also. So when I returned to Montreal, when I returned to Montreal in 1990, 1991, there had been a number of police shootings of young black men, so not unlike the time that we're living in right now. But something about that moment kind of coalesced or crystallized, and people began to organize in ways that perhaps they had not done since the 1960s and 70s. It was also a time of Malcolm X. Like, Malcolm X was kind of, there was, was a resurgence, resurgence in interest Absolutely. In Malcolm X. Absolutely, there was a resurgence in interest. So it was that kind of moment, and people were organizing. There was a group called AKX, also known as X in Montreal, um, that was very active. Uh, in Toronto, there was a group called Unity Force. On campus, the Southern African Committee was very active. And of course, there was the Black Students, Students Network. And you know, we, we organized a series of things. I mean, many of the people that we thought we wanted to see and hear speak um, at the time, you know, that's one of the ironies. You know, we went to a very conservative institution. It gives a very conservative institution. But it's precisely because of its conservative nature that we organized the things that we did. And that's the, the, the kind of paradox. And in many ways, when we think about it, we kind of created the, edu the education and the politics that we wanted to see mm -hmm. that was absent inside the classroom. And it was part of our education, but it was profoundly political. You know, we were attuned to what was happening in the world and we're trying to bring that world to the campus and to the wider community. We were organizing events around the anti-apartheid struggle, even though Mandela had already been released. We had a voter education campaign where we raised funds. We had these little boxes, I still have one of them at home, Dollar for Democracy, where we, we had them stationed all over the city, and people would put in a dollar, and we send them money to South Africa as part of a fundraising for a voter, edu a voter education campaign. We organized with the Palestine Solidarity Committee. You know, We jointly organized events. Um, around the issue of Palestine. And this is long before people were talking about <coughs> this notion of apartheid and drawing parallels between South Africa and, 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 and Israel. So we became active, but again, it's, it's that there's, that there's that contradiction, there's that dialectic there, because if the institution was different, if we were getting all the things that we thought we were looking for inside the classroom, we wouldn't have been doing those things outside the classroom. So in many respects, it kind of, it opened that space for us to organize because we had no choice. We felt we had no choice. You mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier that this gentleman, Alfie Roberts, mm -hmm. uh, and he's the subject of the first book that, that mm -hmm. you worked on. Um, and Alfie was a very special person in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the Montreal community for, for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. He was a remarkable athlete. And he was an intellectual. He had a profound impact, I know, on you. You, you basically became his kind of protege. Mm -hmm. And he introduced you 
uh, in, in many ways to the world. He introduced you to a lot of his, his confreres, a lot of his comrades mm -hmm. who had been active in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship? When I moved back to Montreal, I was looking for something. I was trying to figure out, even before I consciously acknowledged that to myself, what was it about Montreal that, that, that allowed it to become this, this concentrated site of black political activity? And one of the first people I met was Alfie Roberts. I attended this event. Um, well, there, was a, there was a bookstore called Liberation Bookstore in Montreal, which was very similar to, you remember that bookstore? Michael Paris. Michael Paris, exactly. Very similar to Third World Bookstore. And I remember meeting him there. And I learned about this organization called AKX, the youth organization that was organizing around police violence and uh, several killings that had happened in the city at the time, in that, in that general time. And during what they called rap sessions, these weekly rap sessions that they would organize, Alfie Roberts gave a talk. And then I think he probably, you know, which is a testament to the kind of person that he was, like he probably reached out to us. There was, there was talk of bringing Horace Campbell to give a talk about France Fanon. It was 1991, so it was the 30th anniversary of his passing. So we invited Horace Campbell to give a talk. It was at Concordia, but it was jointly organized by the BSN. At a certain point, I discovered that Alfie Roberts had been actively <coughs> involved in those events that had brought me to Montreal. So he was very close with Robert Hill. He had been a protege of, of CLR James, um, very close politically with CLR James. James had conducted these classes, political classes with him in, in Montreal in the mid-1960s. Um, that his house in the 1960s was known as Bedford University because it was this kind of meeting ground where anybody that was concerned with both African and Caribbean politics would converge in his house. In many ways, he was a George Padmore kind of figure. For those of you who know George Padmore was from, from, from Trinidad, was closely associated with C.L.R. James. Childhood friend of James. Uh, childhood friend of James, but they worked together in the 1930s and 40s. So Alfie Roberts was that kind of figure in, in Montreal. talk now about why you do what you do. Hmm. What, why, why, why do you write the books you write? Why do you write them in the way in which you write them? When you're writing these books, what are you trying to do? I've always felt, as long as I can remember, it's one thing to critique the world and talk about what's wrong with the world, but it's another thing to take steps towards trying to change it somehow. And so ultimately, the end of all of that, you know, whether we're talking about writing through the experience of people of Caribbean or African descent in whatever context. It's about social transformation and also about our collective humanity. But we write through different experiences. But one of the things that happens in history and other disciplines, of course, is that if a German theorist or philosopher, a French theorist or philosopher, or a Euro-American, a Euro-Canadian theorist, philosopher, historian, writes history or theorizes, but out of a particular context, could be Germany, could be France, automatically there's an assumption that those ideas and ideals apply to everybody in the world. Mm. But somehow, when black folks create theory and history, it's reduced to only being applicable to black folks. So it's, it's not rather it's than universal, it's, it's particular. Absolutely. But if we can get beyond that, then we realize that the tradition that I would say, well, not, not uncritically, but the tradition that I've inherited nonetheless, is part of a tradition that has played its role. But then you think about James, you think about Franz Fanon, you think about Amy Césaire, Derek Walcott, George Lamming, Edouard Glissant, Sylvie Winter of Jamaica, people like Yann Carew. The list goes on. I mean, it would be kind of foolhardy to try and exhaust the list. I'm saying 
These are folks that come from the smattering of islands called the Caribbean. And then you talk about Haiti, just barely a third of an island, which has its own entire tradition of literature and poetry that has also profoundly shaped French literature and the French language. I'm saying we're talking about people several generations removed from slavery. Now, if there's a lesson that can be shared with the entire world, that's, that's a lesson. Was writing this book political? Favorite, favorite black nation, race, sex, and security in the 60s. Absolutely. You, you said, like, you said in, in I think a previous interview that you go to archives to find the present. Yeah. What, do you, what do you mean by that? I partly mean that I'm not a historian, but I'm some, and I, I mean that not because I don't, because history is profoundly important, and the historical work is profoundly important. But for me, history is more like a methodology. I approach history archives as a way of trying to understand something about how human beings respond to the environment. And there's a lot more to draw on from history than there is from the present because the archives are not there yet. But it tells us something about humanity. It tells us about how the state responds in terms of security and surveillance. And you can't not read those files and then not think about what's the moment, the post-9-11 world that we live in today. It's impossible. And you're specifically looking at the way in which the state has responded to black bodies. Mm-hmm in the society. And you talk a lot about biopolitics and biosexual mm-hmm. politics. What, what do you mean when you talk about biopolitics and biosexual politics, particularly well, as it pertains to black people? Well, biopolitics is, is, is Foucault. I'm one of those people that for many years I, I resisted reading Foucault. It's partly my contrary nature, but it's also resisting this idea that you always have to write through some great Western, French, or German theorist before you can speak. There's something profoundly problematic about that. So that was part of it. But then, as I started going through these files, I realized that perhaps Foucault has something to say about security and surveillance, because Foucault is a philosopher. He draws on archives, right? I started reading a lot of Foucault, and this is interesting. So Foucault is writing about 18th, 19th century Europe, about security and surveillance, notion of biopolitics and the kind of discipline and publishing and surveillance of people, their physical body, within that context. But he's writing as a French philosopher. And Haiti was a colony or a territory of France. And in what other context can you imagine the disciplining and punishing of body? What, what more quintessential example can you find than slavery? It was absolutely that. And yet Foucault says absolutely nothing about slavery. Absolutely nothing. And then there's a, a philosopher, Brady Heiner. He's written this very long article called Foucault and the Black Panther where he very convincingly argues that Foucault visited, give the short version, but Foucault visits the United States in the 1970s after the Attica uprising, the major black prison protest. It wasn't entirely black prison protest, but it was largely black-led. 71. In 71. It's the first prison that he ever visited. And he's interviewing and talking with prisoners about their, about their prisons, about their conditions. And that sparks his theorizing about the prison industrial complex. He's reading the Black Panther Party, their newspaper. George Jackson, U.E.P. Newton, and Angela Davis. He's reading them. Keep in mind, like, so George Jackson is an autodidact. He's like a self-taught theorist who's writing in prison about prison. He's writing about his experience and generalizing his experience to those of other prisoners. But Angela Davis is a philosopher. Herbert Marcuse, the German philosopher, was her professor. And Foucault is reading these folks when they're writing about the prison industrial complex, about how the state uses instruments to repress dissent, etc., etc., and he goes back to France and starts writing about all of these things in relation to 18th, 19th century Europe and does not say a single word about their work. That's pause for a minute, like it's kind of like a moment of silence, right? <laughs> because that's, that's serious. Heiner stopped short of saying that he plagiarized, but essentially that's what he's describing. But of course, 
Foucault understood that in the nature of the production of knowledge, if you reference this marginal, seemingly marginal group called the Black Panther Party in the French Academy, nobody's going to take you seriously. That's the hierarchy of intellectual production. So he chooses to remain silent. That said, I mean, what Foucault does with that theoretically in relation to, to European history is still profoundly significant, but there's a deep hole and a deep problem there. But nonetheless, drawing on his notion of biopolitics and thinking about that in relation to Canadian and American state security and the surveillance of groups that were seen as, uh, as uh, groups of dissent, black organizing, black self-activity, what became very clear in these archives is that there was an added dimension to the surveillance. So they're concerned about black self-organization, self the idea of black organizing themselves to change their circumstances and the impact that would that would have on other groups. When you say they, you're talking about it's the RCMP. The RCMP at the time, because right. there was no CSIS. So right. Canadian state security, representing the Canadian state, right? And this is all in their files. They're profoundly concerned about these folks organizing themselves and occupying public space in public institutions, so the whole world can see. They're also concerned about the international nature of it, because these folks are from they are local folks and they are also folks from the Caribbean and they're connected to the politics of the Caribbean at a time when Canada has huge interest in banking and in bauxite in the Caribbean. They're also worried about the kind of interracial solidarity. Well, that's, what, well, that's the next part, right? Well, that's the contagion part. They're, they're concerned about the influence of not just the American, black American political movements, which were already influencing American movements. The Civil Rights Black Power Movement was profoundly important to all the movements that emerged in the US. But now you have folks not only looking to the United States from Canada, but looking inward at these folks as an example of organizing. But then there's this added dimension, which, which is why I kind of developed this notion of biosexuality as opposed to biopolitics or biosexual politics. Because in these files, they're talking about people like, let's say, Walter Rodney is visiting Montreal. He's at the Congress of Black Writers. In one of the files, they mention Walter Rodney participating in the conference. They describe him as being anti-white and all kinds of other things which are framed completely out of context. And then all of a sudden, after completely denigrating him and mischaracterizing him, and I can tell you that they're mischaracterizing him because I've listened to the recordings of his speech. Then they say, and he showed up to an after party with a white woman. Now you look at it and you say, like, well, what the hell does that have to do with his politics? Then in another file, now in relation to Carrie Levitt. Carrie Levitt, some of you may know, the author of Silent Surrender, which was a classic book on Canadian economics and Canada's economic relationship to the United States. It's considered a classic book in Canadian economics. Also the daughter of Carl, Carl well, Can you let me say that? That Sorry. was like my punchline. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to miss it. How am I going to miss that? Yeah. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Can't resist this Why don't you sit down here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she also happens to be the daughter of Karl Polanyi, right? the, the great theorist, author of the Great Transformation, the Hungarian, Hungarian theorist. In the 1960s, she becomes very close to a number of Caribbean economists and thinkers, like Lloyd Best and uh, many others. So in one of these RCMP files, there's a reference to her, according to a source of unknown reliability, Professor Carrie Levitt has been evicted from her apartment for, quote, having colored men coming in and out of her apartment all day and all night. Now, a little bit further down in the same memo, we're not sure, it's quite possible, 
that these colored men, again, this is the exact words, colored men coming in and out of her apartment all day and all night, might be in relation to her work as an economist, of course, which it was. And she hadn't been evicted, she'd given over her apartment to these folks. They were wrong, but the inference is clear. That if these were colored men coming in and out, in and out of her apartment all day and night for sexual reasons, right? Because they're implying se sexual encounters. That's, that's the implication. They're also implying that there's something profoundly wrong with wrong them. With right? And so what I argue in the book, of course, is that, yes, there's a concern about black-white solidarity. There's a con concern about black-white sexuality, which has to do with the phenomena of how women, and in this case, white women, are tied, are tied to the perceived innocence of the state. And those sexual encounters are perceived as a violation of the state itself. And that, at all costs, was to be avoided. Now, perhaps if I had not been attuned to the work of Franz Fanon, who, who writes about this phenomenon in the colonial context, maybe I would have missed that. But it jumped off at the page at me. For me, it was a dimension that Foucault would miss because he's not thinking about the history of slavery. Because that fear is not just about the woman and the state, but it's also a fear that was inbred and codified during the days of slavery. So this is really like a manifestation of the afterlife of slavery. Exactly. So there are two things that went hand in hand with slavery. Yeah. A fear of slave rebellion and a fear of black-white sexual encounters. They went hand in hand. And this is like almost like a re-rehearsal of that that's playing itself out in, the R in these RCMP files. Really, really briefly, I want to talk about the current moment. 1966 really saw the emergence of black power. We're in 2016 now, and, and we see something called Black Lives Matter. Some people would suggest that everything has changed since 1966. Others would argue nothing has really changed. Wh where are we right now, and particularly in, in this country, with regard to the relationship between black people and the state? Black Lives Matter comes out of all of these incidents, right? one series of shootings after another. We have to kind of understand, have an appreciation of how the media works. These incidents happen every day, every single day in one form or another. It begins with profiling, and the profiling can end in some kind of physical manifestation, some kind of physical abuse. And often people get killed. It happens in Montreal, it happens in Toronto, it happens in this country all the time. It happens to indigenous people too. But I think when we focus on those individual incidents, we kind of miss the systemic institutional nature of it. We're living in a context where since 2000, the black prison population has increased by 50%. In this country? In this country. It's not the United States. Now, unless we have some notion in our head that somehow black folks are more predisposed to criminal activity, there's clearly something profoundly wrong. There's a segment of the black population, just like in other communities, that have shifted towards the middle class and upper middle class that can be presented as symbols of success. And that's a level of success. It's not to be dismissed. And that's what we, I think, sometimes lose sight of. Or it doesn't change how, like in the various neighbors, it would be St. Michel in Montreal or Little Burgundy or NDG. It doesn't change how these young black women and men live. We have this discourse around representation, which has its merits. The discourse of affirmative action, which has its merits, too. We can't assume that everybody who happens to be black sees and understands the world in the same way. I think we need to have that conversation in its entirety, not just about representation, but like thinking about the systemic nature of the fact that it's acceptable that so many black folks could be incarcerated and there's no outcry suggests that people think it's normal or it's something that's somehow encoded in the DNA of black folks and therefore that's where they belong. 
we need to begin to talk about the plight of indigenous people in this country. But again, it's part of that same level of normalization. Maybe we need to ask a different set of questions around, or look in different places to kind of figure out where the problem is. So they had that, what is it, almost like a town hall with Justin Trudeau the other day, and somebody got up from Montreal and asked, well, you know, like, where are the black folks in your, in your caucus? But we also need to ask the same question, what kinds of black folks we want in those places. For our generation, it was like Clarence Thomas was a symbol of, of the conservative black man, right? I mean, who can celebrate that? Right? Kind of a, a backward, a backward you know? Asking the question of what type of person people we want in those positions is one thing. Right? And what does representation actually mean? At the end of the day, I think we need to look below. And sometimes we're looking in the wrong places. Dave, on that note, I think we're going to end this portion of the evening and uh, thank you for your That brings us to the end of this episode of the History Watch podcast on research, repression, and freedom in Montreal, in which we heard from David Austin of John Abbott College. David Austin's research focuses on the politics of race in Canadian contexts. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti. To learn more about the History Watch project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. You can also find links to our other projects on our website. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.